Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. So how can we make this case? Well, one way we can do it is to point out to people that there's no essential difference between the embryos you once were and the adults you are today that would justify killing you at that earlier stage. Arguments cannot be religious or non-religious. Arguments can either be valid or invalid, or sound or unsound. The substance view is the idea that from when you come into existence of fertilization until you die naturally, you are the same individual at every point in your life. So if it is wrong to kill you now, it was wrong to kill you then. Welcome to Pro-Life Thinking, a podcast that trains you in how to defend the pro-life position effectively and persuasively. I'm your host, Clinton Wilcox, and I'm joined by my co-host, Nathan Apodaca. How are you doing, Nathan? Doing rather well. It's been very windy down here. Yeah, um, it's been reasonable here. It's gotten a lot colder. It definitely has gotten colder, which is nice. Yeah, well, uh, you know, we're here. We're going to be talking to Dr. Watt of the Anscon Bioethics Center. Uh, she has yet to arrive, so we're just going to talk for a little bit, and then we'll bring her on as soon as she, uh, as soon as she logs into the into the broadcast here. Yeah, the first thing I wanted to to mention is that I have started an account on Patreon. If you're not familiar with Patreon, it's basically a site that uh, that allows users and and those who consume a, a particular source of media to help financially support that media. And by becoming a patron, you can actually get perks from the uh, the podcast or the YouTube channel, whatever it is that they um, that you're financially contributing to. Now, of course, if you can't afford to contribute, don't feel obligated. This uh, podcast will always remain free. Uh, we feel that the information contained here is, is too important to put it behind a paywall. So, you know, I'm never going to charge for access to the podcast and Hopefully, I, I won't have to resort to, to ads. Although, you know, that, that's a possibility at some point too. But yeah, if you if you appreciate the content and you want to help us keep it free for for everyone, you can feel free to go onto Patreon and uh, become a financial supporter of us. I've got the link in the in the information under the the video here, and uh, it comes with a, with a lot of great perks. Um, you know, you can uh, have your name broadcast on the video or you can uh, get advanced access to certain projects that this podcast or I myself have been working on. Uh, you can get some private training lessons, etc. So, yeah, if, if you would like to financially contribute and receive some perks for that, feel free to, to go on our Patreon at the link provided below. Uh, or if you'd like to uh, to contribute financially the more traditional way, you can still contribute on the Life Training Institute podcast. And the, the advantage of, of uh, becoming a financial supporter through Life Training Institute is that your donations are tax deductible through them. So yes, remember to put your name in the notes section and they'll put your donation into my account. Well, while we're waiting, are there any news articles that we would like to cover? 
Well, I mean, yeah, there's um, one or two news items that I read recently that we can maybe talk about. Probably the most pressing one on my mind has been regarding the embryo that was frozen for 27 years and was implanted. And then the, the child eventually was able to develop and grow and you know be born. Yeah, that's brought up a lot of questions for many people on both sides of the aisle regarding abortion and uh, other issues related to prenatal human life. Yeah, let me see if I can if I can find the the news article for that. And this, of course, brings up ethical considerations regarding things like in vitro fertilization right. and things like that, because almost all pro life people would oppose in vitro fertilization if there are excess embryos that are created only to be frozen and destroyed or experimented on, that kind of thing. So most pro-life people would oppose IVF for that reason. Uh, I follow certain philosophers and theologians who would actually argue that in vitro fertilization is intrinsically immoral, not just because there are excess embryos that are created and destroyed, but because of, of other factors, such as the fact that in vitro fertilization actually turns children into commodities, into property. So, of course, we know that treating people as property is wrong uh, because, number one, you're, you're violating their inherent dignity as human beings by treating them as property. Uh, and number two, if you approach it from a, from a more Kantian point of view, uh, you're not treating those embryos conceived as ends in themselves. You're treating them as merely a means to an end, to the end of, of providing children for yourself. And so, you know, the, the, if, you're, if a couple is infertile, the need and, and desire to want to create children, if you're unable to conceive children of your own, is, of course, very understandable. But we have to remember that we have to pursue ethical means of uh, fertility treatments. And so treating children as merely a means to an end or treating them as property, of course, is not an ethical way to treat children, but, you know, even at the, at the embryo stage. Since uh, in vitro fertilization treats children as property and it treats them as merely a means to an end, not an end unto themselves, uh, a means, you know, that the parents desire to have children. So that's the only reason that, that they've been conceived, essentially. IVF, we would say, is intrinsically immoral. Right. So that's just a brief discussion of that. Dr. White has actually appeared, so I'm going to add her into the stream. Hi, Dr. Watt. Hello. Good morning, Dr. Watt. Yes, I'm, I'm sorry I'm late. I had a call just before I came on. Came on so. Oh, no, that, that's perfectly fine. Uh, yeah, we, we, had, uh, we had a few things to, to talk about uh, until you got here, so we're, we're good there. Okay, so I'm going to uh, give an introduction for Helen, and then we'll move on from there. Our guest for today, as you see on your screen, is Dr. Helen Watt. Now, Dr. Helen Watt is Senior Research Fellow of the Anscombe Bioethics Center and a Research Fellow of Blackfriars Hall, Oxford. She is the author of The Ethics of Pregnancy, Abortion, and Childbirth from 2016 and Life and Death in Healthcare Ethics, a short introduction from 2000, and the editor of several books, including Cooperation, Complicity, and Conscience in 2006. Helen, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, I think, for the intention of being our first guest from across the pond. Oh, is that right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Many, many people to interview in the okay. U.S. So, uh, yes, I'm, I'm very honoured. Yeah, we're we're very pleased to ha- to have you here. This is this is an uh, an issue that, of course, has been a lot on a lot of people's minds. Uh, we've brought in Dr. Watt to talk about the ethics of vaccines, and not just specifically vaccines, but as we know, COVID nineteen, the the novel coronavirus, as they call it, has been. 
I don't know if devastating is really the right word, but there have been a lot of deaths and a lot of nasty side effects that come around with COVID-19. And so the uh, United States government has, uh, or I'm not sure if other other countries' governments have been involved or not as well, but uh, we know that there have been two uh, two companies, Pfizer and Moderna, who have actually developed a, a vaccine. They, they sort of... Uh, uh, they, they called it Operation Warp Speed in that they basically uh, put that as a high priority to develop a vaccine for this virus. And so uh, Pfizer has developed a vaccine, which at last I heard is 95% effective. And I think Moderna recently came out and said that while it was 95% effective, it's now essentially 100% effective. So these vaccines are, are coming down, which will help prevent us from contracting coronavirus, but that leads to ethical issues because evidently they use cells from from a previously aborted fetus in the development of the vaccines. So that, of course, raises the question in a lot of pro-life people's minds, is it ethical to take a vaccine that used fetal cells in the construction of that vaccine? So we brought Dr. Helen Watt on to talk, on to talk about the ethics of taking that vaccine. And if there's time at the end, we definitely want to spend a few minutes talking about the book too, but we want to talk primarily about the vaccine. And if we do get live uh, listeners, then of course, you're more than welcome to comment and ask questions of Dr. Watt. We'll ask those questions of her and post it here on the uh, video portion here. So Helen, the first question that I like to ask all of our guests, which is just kind of a get to know you question, is why are you pro-life? What was your your journey into becoming a pro-life? I think I always have been, really. Uh, it always made sense logically to me. Um, I mean, I've, I've learned a lot more about the pro-life position, you know, uh, as I've got older, but uh, I can't remember a time I wasn't pro-life. I mean, my parents were pro-life, um, so it was natural to, for me to be to be pro-life. What was it that um, that kind of led for you to desire to go into, uh, into bioethics as a field of specialty? Well, to be honest, I... Uh, I um, it happened quite naturally. I mean, I, I I I got a scholarship to go to to Edinburgh University, and my my PhD thesis was on the origin of of persons. So when does a person begin? And uh, that's a fairly pro life kind of topic. And uh, and uh, straight after that, I, I went to work for a bioethics centre, um, the same same centre I'm working with now, actually. So um, so uh, yes, it's all fitted in. Well, great. Um, could you tell us a bit about the Anscombe Bioethics Centre? Yeah, certainly. Um, we're um, we're a Catholic bioethics centre based uh, in Oxford. Um, so yes, we have some links with uh, Blackfriars Hall, uh, Oxford. Uh, in the, in that, um, uh, my colleague and I uh, have research posts at, uh, at Blackfriars, uh, but we're not a part of the university as such. And um, we give ethical advice to anyone, anyone basically who comes to us. Um, they don't have to be Catholic. Um, so doctors, nurses, scientists, pharmacists, but also also patients, infertile people sometimes, you know, people with pregnancy problems. You know, anyone can approach us for, for ethical advice. So it sounds like we brought in the right person to talk about this. <laughs> oh, <we'll> see. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I guess one of the first questions that I had regarding the, the topic at hand here is how often do scientists use fetal cell lines in the development of vaccines? Is that a fairly common practice? Uh, well, it's um, common enough, but then so is, so is using alternatives. I mean, yeah, they, often enough people use um, animal cells or, or plant cells, or and increasingly they're not using cells at all, actually, um, in, in, the, in the actual production of the vaccine. Um, now, unfortunately, some cell-free vaccines 
um, are being tested on a fetal cell line, you know, to, to confirm that uh, they are what they're thought to be. Uh, but some of the newer vaccines don't use cells at all. Before we actually talk more deeply on the topic of vaccines, which, would you say pro-life people should feel that it's ethically permissible to to take the COVID vaccine? Well, uh, there is a range of, of, of COVID vaccines, and I think um, pro-lifers should make some efforts to access um, the vaccine that's that's least problematic, so that's had least um, fetal cell involvement, uh, because that encourages uh, pharmaceutical companies to to avoid um, cell lines that were originally produced using fetal tissue. Now, cell lines are not the same as fetal tissue. Cell lines uh, are descended and developed from the original fetal tissue decades ago. But nonetheless, you know, if if vaccine companies move away from using even the cell lines produced from the fetal tissue, that's all for the good because it will help to discourage, um, one hopes, the, um, uh, the use of the fetal tissue in the first place. So when they when they use these fetal cells for development of a vaccine, these are actually cell lines from the original fetus. They're not they're not actually using fetuses that were aborted recently, correct? No, no, they're not. No, uh, in fact, no, no, no cell that they're using was once part of the fetus. You know, the, these these are immortalized uh, cell lines. Um, and in terms of complicity with the original abortion, well, you know, the 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 collection of fetal tissue was very complicit because that involved. Um, prior arrangements with with the abortionist, you know, with the woman having the abortion, you know, with plans for abortion, in other words. So that's that's extremely complicit. Uh, since then, since the cell lines have been created, they now circulate around labs, uh, and uh, many scientists actually aren't particularly focused on where they came came from. But in order to discourage um, the use of fetal tissue in the first place, it's good if scientists, um, you know, do avoid these uh, these these fetal um, cell lines, uh, even though they're not the same as fetal tissue. I just have one question based on that. When you mentioned that the cell lines, I believe you used the term immortalized, do you mind just explaining that briefly? Yes, ba basically these cells just go on dividing um, right. and, you know, indefinitely. I mean, it's not clear you know, when when the cell lines will be will be used up. I mean, some cell lines from decades ago are still, are still uh, standing up pretty well, actually. And um, it's true there was a, there are some newer Chinese uh, cell lines that have been created, but that's said to be because China doesn't want to be dependent on the West. Um, it's not that the original cell lines, you know, aren't working uh, because they are. I had a, a a more general ethical question. What are the ethics of using medical treatments that were developed using unethical means? Because obviously, a lot of pro life people have concerns about uh, about fetuses being aborted and those fetuses being experimented on. But th this has applications for other uh, medical treatments as well. Treatments that were developed using other unethical means, such as we we often hear about the Tuskegee experiments and things like that. Are we ethically obligated to avoid treatments that were developed using unethical means, or would it be permissible for us to, to use those? Well, I think it's quite often permissible for us to use things developed by ethical, by unethical means. Um, in fact, that happens, that happens on a daily basis, if you think about it. I mean, we, we live in houses sometimes, we're built by slaves. You know, do we, do we leave our houses? You know, we, you know, we might eat fruit that was planted by slaves. We might have inherited money from someone who inherited 
uh, money from someone who, who gained it in very immoral ways. So um, we do live in a web of relationships and all the time, in fact, we're benefiting from the past wrongdoing of other people. That doesn't mean it's always right to do that. Uh, you do have to think about messages you give out and sometimes there'll be a good enough reason to, to, to take the risk of giving out bad messages and sometimes there won't. There won't. So it's really a judgment call for people to make. Yeah, that, that's a good point. I actually hadn't uh, hadn't considered it from that point of view before. Okay, so I do have a question that someone from Facebook asked, and, and he's a, a biologist. And so his his question, uh, this is from Elijah Thompson on Facebook, and he asks if it's ethical to use cells from an aborted baby in the 1970s, and he gives a couple of examples, HEK, WI38, etc., cetera, uh, because of the time lapse, then should we treat the Walvax cell line from 2015, he believes, any differently? Well, um, first of all, the HEK uh, cell line, um, it's not entirely clear that it came from abortion, actually. Um, that's a cell line where the origins are a bit murky and um, it's not clear whether it was from a spontaneously aborted, i.e. miscarried fetus, or whether it was from a deliberately aborted fetus. And now, sadly, it may well have been from a deliberately aborted fetus, but with that particular cell line, it's not entirely clear. Um, I do think I do think in the case of a, of a recent abuse, there's there's more reason to 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 protest to avoid it. Um, uh, not least because the, the number of hands that's been through is likely to be less. I mean, as I say, I mean these these cell lines from the older these older cell lines have been circulating very widely in in, in labs, whereas um, you know a, a newly created cell line that you have to apply to the company for, you know, that's that creates a worse message, I think. The two companies that I've heard of doing vaccines for COVID are Pfizer and Moderna. Uh, I'm not sure if there are any other companies. Those are just the two that I've heard in the news. Uh, you mentioned earlier about how pro-life people should seek out the, the most ethical vaccine that would be available. Do, do you think one of those two would be would be permissible, or is there another uh, another vaccine that's been developed that you think pro-life people should uh, should look into accepting when it becomes available? Well, actually, uh, I'd urge everyone to go to the, the website of the Charlotte Lozier Institute and look at a chart they've got, um, which is which is um, an updated chart on, on the various vaccines and, and the extent of, if any, of, of involvement of, um, of a fetal cell line. Uh, for example, there is a vaccine called CureVac, which is um, becoming available in in Europe, and CureVac apparently made no use of, of, of a fetal cell line. You know, not in not in the design, not in the production, and not in the final testing stage either. Uh, now, with Pfizer and Moderna, they they certainly did use a fetal cell line in the testing stage, um, uh, but you know, not in the actual production of the vaccine because these are self self free vaccines. Um, so yes, I mean, just see what's available. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying people have to, have to fly halfway around the world or anything like that, but see what is available and, um, you know, look at the chart. And uh, if uh, one thing people could do, actually, is look at the companies which haven't yet used a test involving a fetal cell line, write to the company and ask them not to, because these companies are still producing vaccines. There's a, no a number of candidates out there. Uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and, and look up uh, that chart on the from the Charlotte Lozier Institute and put it in the show notes so that uh, anyone who watches or listens um, would be able to have a, an easy access to, to that site. Uh, so I'll do that after our, our broadcast here. Would there be any other ways that somebody who is interested in being a little deeper would be able to 
I guess, find out if fetal cell lines were used in a particular vaccine? Do the companies that produce the vaccines produce the research in a way that's easy to find? Well, it, it might not be entirely easy to find, but um, but uh, it might be easier, oddly enough, with, with these new um, vaccines. I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, one thing to look out for is the phrase human diploid, actually. The phrase okay. diploid will often refer to a fetal cell line. As I say, I mean, it could be it could be a cell line from miscarriage, conceivably. Okay. Um, but, um, uh, yes, look for the phrase human diploid and, and, and maybe write to the company because that, that makes the company think people care about this. You know, we should be thinking about this for the future. Okay. The vaccines that I've been hearing about, they, they've been saying that they are mRNA vaccines as opposed to the vaccines that we're usually used to receiving. Um, could you talk a little bit on the difference between an mRNA vaccine and the vaccine, well, I'm, not, I'm not sure what they call them, but the ones where they inject a little bit of the virus into you to help build up your antibodies. Could you maybe talk a little bit about the difference between those two kinds so we uh, know what to expect from receiving an mRNA vaccine? Yeah, well, I'll do my best. I, I should um, I should say that I'm I'm not a medical doctor or a scientist, so so just just so people are aware, you know. But um, as I understand it, um, the mRNA vaccines, um, this is messenger RNA, and in a sense, that's the link between your DNA and 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 you know making proteins and things. And uh, and this vaccine is is supposed to mimic the way that the that the coronavirus uh, gets at you, um, and um, the the RNA is is produced um, uh, synthetically uh, uh, via machines, I believe. Um, so people are people are sometimes concerned that this is going to affect their DNA, but that's not the direction things normally happen. Normally things go DNA, RNA, protein. So for an RNA uh, vaccine to affect your DNA, um, some people say, well. That's not very likely, um, but as I say, I, I'm not a scientist, so I, you know, I don't want to pretend to more knowledge than I have. No, that's fine. Uh, I appreciate you, uh, you know, giving your, your thoughts on that. Those are pretty much all the questions I had regarding the vaccine. Did you have any other questions regarding the vaccine, uh, Nathan? No, actually, I think you answered all the questions that I had. Okay, I think that pretty well does it for the vaccine. So we can move into uh, a discussion of, of the book. I know you wanted to talk about that, Nathan, so why don't you go ahead and... I will just mention, I think it is probably one of the best books on issues, not just of abortion, but also other bioethics issues related to pregnancy and reproduction that I've ever read. Um, oh, well, thank you. This is kind of yeah, it's, it's one that I definitely, I definitely recommend it to everybody. In fact, actually, I think I gave Clinton his copy, if I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah, you did. Oh, well, yeah. you don't have to read it, don't worry. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, actually, it's, it's right up my alley. I've actually done a little bit of, of publishing in, well, I published in a in a peer-reviewed journal, and I have another one out for review right now. And so this is definitely something that, that is kind of my job requirement is to keep up with the uh, academic discussion on, on abortion and pregnancy and those kinds of things. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a very helpful resource. Oh, well, thank you. So I guess we could just go through, uh, go through the book chapter by chapter or um, just topic by Topics, since you do cover several topics in the book, uh, I guess the first question would just be: What led you to write the book? What was your inspiration for it? Well, I've written I've written sort of bits and pieces on on pregnancy issues before, but I wanted to bring it all together really into into the one book. So not just abortion, but things like IVF and embryo adoption and surrogacy and that kind of thing. And I, I wanted to look at the pregnancy relationship. So, you know, not just the rights of the unborn child, though those are very important, but also uh, what pregnancy means for the woman, 
the woman is the custodian of the pregnancy or the unborn child. Her pregnancy is a maternal relationship. Um, so just exploring some of those issues, because I think sometimes in the pro-life community, we can treat we can treat pregnancy too much as if the baby were outside the woman and right. and forget to see how unique this relationship is, really. I really liked how you took it and you said, you know, looking at the the spousal pregnancy, um, the relationship of uh, husband and wife or just mother and father in relation to pregnancy or the maternal the maternal pregnancy, the relationship between mother and child. And then you also talk about the, I believe it's the neighborly pregnancy, and you respond to the arguments of Judith Jarvis Thompson and David Boonin regarding bodily autonomy. Could we possibly just uh, summarize that real quick, if it's possible? Yes, certainly. Um, basically, after after looking at the idea that the that the unborn in the first chapter, the idea that the unborn child isn't a person at all, I then move into the the idea that okay, you know, let's say it's a person, but why do you have to support this person? Why do you have to let your body be used this way for? For nine months, and yes, I mean, uh, and those those of us who read, read philosophy, you know, we're aware of this famous example of the violinist. So you're kidnapped, you're connected to a violinist, you're expected to support this violinist, you know, via this tube to your kidneys for nine months. You know, do you really have to do that, and and so on. And um, and yes, I'm just looking at the differences between that kind of sci-fi scenario and and pregnancy, which is which is something from which we've all benefited, you know, something which is not a, you know, a technical kind of process, but something that's a, that's a, a very physiological process, something that's your, that your body's meant to do, um, something that's not a connection stranger to stranger, as the violinist case is, but a connection, you know, I would say mother to child. Um, so, so yes, yeah, just, just, just looking at, looking at, um, at why you have to support um, support the unborn child, at um, at you know whether you're being a free rider, if you yourself benefit from this sort of universally needed needed um, you know uh, mother child relationship, you know why you're being a free rider, or then you refuse to to offer that yourself if you find yourself in the position of, of supporting your own unborn child. Um, and um, and yes, basically the things that make that that make pregnancy the kind of relationship it is. So perhaps for any listeners who may not be familiar with the book, perhaps a, a quick overview would be helpful to facilitate understanding. The book really talks about uh, the various types of pregnancy that that a woman may have. You, you title it, for example, chapter one is the unipersonal pregnancy. Then you have the neighborly pregnancy, the maternal pregnancy, and the spousal pregnancy. And each of these types of pregnancy that you talk about in the book, that's really meant to look at each individual relationship that she has, the relationship of herself to her own body, the universe, the interpersonal pregnancy, then the relationship of the woman to the child, then the relationship of the woman to her spouse, etc. Is that kind of correct as the overview to the to the book or it, it, it is yes, I, I, I suppose different approaches not just different dimensions of pregnancy the, the, the later chapters are, are more about that but also different approaches to pregnancy because the unipersonal pregnancy is you know you're the only person there you know this is all completely your decision um so the idea that the that the baby is part of you would be a, a unipersonal type approach to pregnancy and i'm right. really that. i'm saying well no the you know the baby isn't a part of you you know the baby is a human being, a human being is a bodily kind of being. You know, the, the, um, the, uh, this is a, this is another hu a human being whom you're supporting, and then you move on to the well. Is it just a another neighbour then? 
you know, are you supporting a, a, a neighbour, you know, how close a neighbour? Are you just being a good Samaritan as regards another human being? Or is it something more special than that? Okay, thanks for clarifying that. that that's definitely helpful. That is a very, at least as, as far as I've seen in the academic literature, that is a very unique perspective. But I think it's also one of the most common sense perspectives. I mean, when somebody finds out they're pregnant, we celebrate with them. We, we're excited for them. Because I think we do see that maternal relationship there. We see something very beautiful between the relationship of mother and child. It almost seems strange just to think about it. It's like, oh, well, they're no more than my relationship to my neighbor. It's like, no, we actually do see that relationship there. And that's why we get so excited when somebody says they are going to have a baby. In the discussion of the book, you do respond to a number of the common objections, even a lot of uh, street level objections that are very popular right now. I think probably the most popular is the, oh, abortion is a form of health care. And you do respond to that in the book. Uh, would you mind just possibly explaining your response? Well, uh, yes. I mean, I, I mean, I suppose if 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 pregnancy if pregnancy is a disease, then then abortion is healthcare. But pregnancy is not a disease, and, yeah. and most people will, will 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 admit that. I mean, it really isn't. I mean, pregnancy can involve complications, you know. But right. certainly, normal uterine pregnancy is is not a disease um, itself. Um, so. Um, the difficult issue is, of course, when you have these complications, you know, what to do about about pregnancies that do threaten life and health and uh, how to manage those pregnancies in a way that's, you know, completely respectful of, of the woman and the unborn child you know, and the relationship that they that they have. And um, one thing I, I aim to do is to move beyond the idea that only if you're intending death um, is is the the dissolution of, of of the pregnancy relationship before viability, the deliberate dissolution, you know, uh, something that that you need to avoid, um, even in crisis situations. I'm saying we have to go beyond that, and you know, respect for the unborn child's body and respect for the pregnancy relationship goes beyond avoiding intending the unborn child's death. And so, there's, there's some discussion of 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 the principle of double effect. You know where where you where you where you where you do one thing that has the side effect of harming another human being and and so forth and um and, and just looking at those issues because um uh, you know most pregnancy is is uncomplicated you know but uh, there are these high risk pregnancies and we do have to know what to say when we're when we're when we're you know face to face with that situation. We definitely appreciate your your point of view on this too because obviously you know uh, Nathan and I are both men and uh, that's kind of a an aspect of the abortion discussion where you know obviously it would be you know a logical fallacy to say that because Nathan and I are men we can't talk about abortion or we can't defend the rights of the unborn but rather than someone like Nathan or me talking about what a pregnancy is like because we can only read secondhand accounts from other women who've been pregnant it, it helps to, to hear uh the perspective of a woman talking about pregnancy and and the ethical ramifications of it. So, you know, we definitely appreciate your your thoughts on that and and the the books you've written as well. I was actually kind of curious. Uh, the Anscombe Biolithics Center is that named for Elizabeth Anscombe? It is. Yes. No. 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 It is. In fact, our, our first director was it was was her son-in-law. So, uh, oh, cool. <laughs> yes. Uh, there's a there's a family relationship as well. So. Yeah. So, um, would you consider yourself a, a Thomas? Yeah. No, I would. I would. Um, okay. Uh, 
Yes, Aristotelian Thomas kind of kind of approach. Um, uh, so it's so yes, I mean it will be very much about human flourishing. You know what makes human beings flourish. It will be about choices. Yeah. What are you actually choosing? It will be about about the virtues. You know what what helps to fulfil you morally. Um, uh, so um, yes, in fact, I'm very interested in, in in action theory. So you know what are you intending when you're when you're acting and and also is there anything else that that could be morally conclusive apart from your intentions I mean, and and i think I, I think there is i mean um a, a colleague and i have worked on um on what what you know what my colleague calls um unintended uh, morally determinative aspects of of, of a choice and, and i think that's something worth thinking about as well yeah i consider myself a thomas too so i'm just glad that uh, that that there are other thomas here to uh, expand these kinds of ideas I guess just one other argument from the book related to abortion that I wanted to address. It is kind of, I think if I remember correctly, it's in the category of the neighborly pregnancy. And this is an argument that I'm hearing more and more lately. It's almost a newer rendition of the bodily rights argument is that nobody has the right to force me to be pregnant. That's a common talking point that I'm hearing. Now, obviously, it's just an assertion that's not even a very developed argument, but I have had conversations with people, and I'm even starting to see this more on the academic side where People say, well, nobody has a right to force someone else to be pregnant. And obviously, right off the bat, we know that's not what we're doing here is pro-lifers aren't going out and holding somebody down and making them become pregnant. Yes, yes. I mean, it's not, it hasn't even crossed anybody's mind. It's a, it's a completely ridiculous notion. But at the same time, there is this idea that I have a right to not be pregnant anymore. Nobody has a right to require me to give birth. And... You do address that in the book, and one of the arguments or one of the talking points that is used is that, oh, the pro-life position just treats women as incubators. The pro-life position only values the unborn child. It doesn't value the dignity of the woman. And I think you do a really good job of answering that in the book when you point out that it is abortion that actually denies the dignity of women by treating them as there's something inherently flawed in their nature. Would you mind uh, expounding on that? Yes, certainly. Um, the, the, there is a, a legal academic um, in the US called uh, Erica Bakayoki, who's well yeah. worth looking up. Um, you, you, you know her. Um, I'm very fond of her work. Yes, no, no, no. Uh, very, very, very helpful, um, helpful uh, writings. Yes, she makes the point that um, the, idea, the, the idea is that why should we accept the male paradigm, you know, and not only the male paradigm, but the selfish male paradigm, you know, why should we accept that women should be able to walk away from sexual relationships, you know, and not accept the responsibilities that come with them in the form of a, a child that they've conceived, just because that's what a selfish man can do? Um, in, in fact, our society does expect men to to pay child support for, for their children and so forth. And um, yes, and so rather than have everyone behave like the most selfish kind of kind of kind of man, you know, why not? You know, expect all parents to look after their children. I mean, we don't say a man is being treated like a cradle when we expect him to to hold his own baby. You know, we say he's being treated like a father. You know, why yeah. not why not treat treat both parents seriously as parents? Um, uh, not just in terms of expecting them to meet their responsibilities, but supporting them to meet their responsibilities. Because right. I think a lot of the time people people are, are, are you know completely phased by the by the by the news of a pregnancy or even the birth of a, of a baby and just take some time to t come to terms with it but can be very good parents um if they're supported in in stepping up to the plate so 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 yes you're just just treating treating parenthood as something uh, that can just come to you you know to a, to a to a man as well as to a to a woman you know you 
you, you know, you, you may not have chosen to be pregnant. Um, in the case of rape, of course, you won't even have chosen to have intercourse. But nonetheless, you find you are pregnant and that carries, carries you know, not just responsibilities, but rights and joys and, um, you know, a whole dimension of life that you, you didn't have before. A few weeks ago, we had uh, Chris Kayser on here to talk about his new book on uh, bioethics issues. And he had a really good chapter about how children can contribute to the flourishing of their parents. And that's something that does get left out of the conversation a lot is that children are a very big benefit to their parents. They help their parents, I guess, find themselves in a way. Yes. yes. We can move on to a couple of the other topics in your book, because uh, you also you talk about uh, surrogacy and you also talk about embryo adoption. And actually, right before you came on, me and Clinton were talking about the recent story of the the baby that was born who had been frozen as an embryo for 27 years, I believe. 27 years, I think, yeah. Right. I guess we can start off that discussion by just getting, uh, what would your opinion on that be or your thoughts on that be? On frozen embryo adoption or, or, or on the birth of a, of a child 27 years after? after yeah, that was I, I guess what your thoughts on the ethics of that would be, uh, we touched on it a little bit earlier, but I think since you do cover embryo adoption and that a lot of information related to IVF, I think it'd be great just to get your uh, thoughts on that story. Well, um, uh, if you could just refresh your, my memory, I mean, I mean, um, was that a case of of an of uh, of embryo adoption, or was that the was that the genetic parents themselves? Um, I think it was embryo adoption, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Well, I mean, first of all, to look at the the injustice of freezing, really. I mean, that 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 embryo has missed out on on the last twenty seven years. You know, it has missed out on a lot of things. That, that that embryo should have had. Um, uh, that embryo is lucky to be alive because, of course, many frozen embryos don't survive the process of, of unfreezing or, or, or they're discarded, you know, um, at some point uh, by the clinic. Um, the, the issue of embryo adoption specifically, I should say I used to support that, but then I changed my mind because of thinking about what pregnancy, what becoming pregnancy is I mean, when a woman becomes pregnant of a child who isn't her child, she becomes a mother by the act of becoming pregnant. I mean, if you're if you're the genetic mother, you're already a mother, so you don't become a mother by becoming pregnant with your own embryo. But if you're not already a mother, that is how you become pregnant. And then the question is, um, should or that is how you become a mother. And then the question is, should you become a mother, a biological mother, in this completely technical way? I mean, isn't that something you should only become via an interpersonal act, you know, an act that, that means something marital? You know, isn't isn't a marital act the only act that's good enough, you know, to become a mother by? If by mother you mean biological mother. Um, now, someone might talk, point to postnatal adoption and say, well, you know, a postnatal uh, child can be adopted by new parents and, the, and those parents become parents by adopting. Uh, but that doesn't mimic uh, biological, normal biological parent in the same parenthood in the same way. Uh, so I think it's very important to keep pregnancy as a, as a as a sort of reliable sign of origin. When you see a pregnant woman, you should be able to say where that child came from. You know, uh, what what pregnancy should mean is that this child came from this married couple. You know, who will look after that child to the best of their ability after the child's born, and you know, if 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 pregnancy doesn't uh, mean that anymore, that's I think that's a significant social loss. 
I brought up a news article here about it, and the embryo, her name is Molly Everett Gibson, and she was transferred to her mom's uterus. So she was implanted in the uterus and born from the body of her of her own mother. Okay. Well, that's that's interesting. In that case, I'd say, you know, better late than never. You know, yeah, that, I mean, yeah, that's good that the, that the, that the mother you know, didn't abandon her altogether, that the mother, you know, took her to term. I mean, you know, she's lost... 26 years or 27 years and that's 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 a shame and if she has siblings she won't have a sibling a normal sibling type relationship with them which is a shame but you know she 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 is able to have her life and that's good i believe in the book you also talk a little bit about surrogacy that is an issue that a lot of her lifers even i've noticed are somewhat divided on is the ethics of surrogacy would you mind just uh giving us an overview of your views on the ethics of surrogacy no, not at all. I, I think the issue here, again, is the meaning of pregnancy. I mean, is pregnancy just babysitting? Or is pregnancy about motherhood? You know, and, you know, if so, should you be becoming effectively a mother of a child you have you have no intention of looking after when it's born? Hmm. You know, if you, if you become pregnant, you know, um, of a child you're not intending to, intending to to look after, you know, of a child who's not um, not originally your child, then, yeah, pregnancy is being treated as if it were just, just a, another way of supporting a child. And, and, and I think many of us in, think that's wrong because many of us think it's wrong to take a child from a, a surrogate mother who doesn't want to relinquish that child. Right. Many of us think if, if the surrogate says, no, I've changed my mind, oh, no, I want this child, you can have your money, no, I want this child, I want to bring up this child, many of us think that it would be very wrong to take take the child from from that woman because she is a kind of mother. I mean, she might not be a genetic mother, but she is a gestational mother because motherhood, unlike unlike fatherhood, you know, has this extra dimension, this this gestational dimension. You know, yeah. the gestational mother is not the only mother in that situation, but it is certainly a mother, and it's the last mother who's been looking after the baby. So to have to have continuity, you know, the, the, and, and to keep pregnancy, you know. At, as meaning something maternal, which is socially important, um, the surrogate should be allowed to keep the child. Right. So again, this is not just about saving lives. I mean, it's, it's very important to save lives, but you have to think about how the lives are, are, are saved. You know, um, are they saved in ways that, that, that respect everyone involved, you know, that respect the meaning of the, you know, of, of, of something like pregnancy? Uh, you do talk about maternal child relationships, and especially in the context of pregnancy that is life-threatening. And that is an issue that even a lot of pro-lifers are divided on is some pro-life groups will say that abortion is never required for a life-threatening pregnancy. And unfortunately, from what I, at least me and Clinton have, told, have noticed is that a lot of these arguments aren't even, they aren't very aware of the medical aspect of it. What would your thoughts on that be since you do talk about it in the book? Yes, uh, I think a lot of people, um assume that abortion is defined as something which is aimed at killing the baby and if you define abortion that way as something that's necessarily aimed at killing the baby then then you can say well look you don't have to aim at killing the baby you can be aiming at something else um in the case of a life-threatening pregnancy uh, and so and so that could be fine um but if you but if you have a definition of abortion that includes in a deliberate termination of the mother-child relationship before the baby can live outside the womb, or um, you know, a deliberate invasion of the baby's tissues 
you know, including the placental tissues, you know, of a kind known to be lethal, so a slightly more sophisticated definition of abortion, um, then, you know, you just can't say that, that, um, that abortion is never in inverted commas necessary to save the mother's life. The, the question is, you know, is it ever is it ever okay to do to do this particular thing, even to save someone's life? Um, you might think of the case of conjoined twins. I mean, I don't think we can assume that because a life will be saved, you know, because you know, both conjoined twins might die if they're not separated. I don't think we can just assume that separations that you know invade the body of one twin. In a lethal way, in order to benefit the other twin, are morally justified. I think sometimes life throws up these very poignant dilemmas, and we have to take seriously people's rights, even in in those situations. Or you can imagine um, a, a car crash where you know the only way of getting out of the car is to cut your way through some unconscious person. You know, he might be a relative or whatever, in a way that that will kill them. I mean, that will save you, and they're going to die anyway. But does that does that mean it's okay to do that? Um, even without the aim of ending their life. Uh, so, so yes, I think we have to accept that sometimes we do get very, very poignant dilemmas and we have to hold firm to certain principles about respect, um, first of all, for the body of the other person, um, but in the case of pregnancy, also respect for the pregnancy relationship because that's very, very important. Um, now, by the same token, I think sometimes um, the woman may accept treatments for her own body you know, even if she knows that the baby will die, um, because um, treatments targeted on her own body and her own body alone, uh, for example, cancer treatments, um, you know, are something that she's got the you know the authority to organise. Um, you know, the, um, you have the authority to treat your own um, ill body in ways that target that body and not the body of of, of somebody else. So it's not about you know, benefit, you know benefiting the baby over and above the woman you know or benefiting the woman over and above the baby. It's about respecting both both lives and both bodies uh, and also the mother-child relationship. That was actually that was going to be my next question was when we consider this dilemma, would it be best to view it in light of that mother-child relationship or and in respect to the woman's role as a mother? Yes, I, I think it would. I think I think that would be a good idea. Um, bear in mind as well that you know sometimes sometimes even when uh, it's a situation where there's something that could be done to save both, because of the mother's special relationship, it's for her to authorise that or or not. So right. she's the custodian of the pregnancy in a very special way. So sometimes. When it's not um, a situation where one of them is definitely going to die, a situation where both could be saved, let's say if she authorises some life life-saving procedure, you know, let's say fetal surgery or a cesarean or something like that, you know, because of the special relationship, it is for her to authorise that or not. Um, and so I think we have to look at the complexity of the relationship. I mean, you know, it's, it's not a matter of benefiting the baby whatever happens it's not a matter of benefiting the woman whatever happens it's not a matter of even of saving as many lives as we can you know this is this is about you know um, maternal responsibilities you know for for uh, the woman's own body uh, for the body of, of her unborn child and, and respect for the body of her unborn child in, in all situations right. we're coming up to the end of our of our time here where could people find you uh find you online dr what 
Well, the website of the Anscom Centre is bioethics.org.uk, so that's uh, that's very easy easy to remember. Um, and uh, we have have a range of, of, of material and publications there. People might be interested in in, in looking at. And um, and yes, I do do pass a visit. So we, we talked a bit about the ethics of receiving vaccinations that use fetal cells. And we talked about Dr. Helen Watts' book, uh, The Ethics of Pregnancy, Abortion, and Childbirth. So, uh, Dr. Watt, uh, thank you very much for coming on and letting us interview you. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was, it was a pleasure. Once again, this has been the Pro-Life Thinking Podcast. Uh, we appreciate you listening in. If you're if you're able to and would like to financially support the uh, the podcast here, uh, you can go on the Life Training Institute podcast at uh, ProLifeTraining.com and uh, donate uh, in the menu at the top. You can put my name in the note section to ensure that the donation gets put in my account. And all donations through Life Training Institute are tax deductible. Or you can find us on Patreon. We do have a Patreon page, which uh, you can which you can get certain perks if you uh, if you would like to help financially support the podcast uh, again as uh, as Greg Cunningham of the Center for Bioethical Reform says there are more people working full-time to kill unborn babies than there are working full-time to save them so any donations you give toward the podcast will will help uh, not only with the financial responsibilities of the podcast, but also helping get the uh, the word about uh, bioethics and about the pro-life position out to to a lot of people you know potentially, thousands or hundreds of thousands of listeners. So we, we appreciate that. But again, never feel obligated. This this podcast will always remain free. We, we uh, hope that you enjoyed it. And if you did, uh, feel free to share it around social media, Facebook, Twitter, wherever you frequent. Again, on behalf of uh, Nathan and the uh, Pro-Life Thinking Podcast, we thank you again for joining us and we'll see you next time. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.